And let us pray. Father in heaven, you have uh, redeemed us through the blood of the Lamb. And that redemption has changed us, who we are and what we are. And has given us a different way to look at all around us. We pray, Lord, that this morning you would bless your people with a a larger vision of all that surrounds us and our part in your kingdom. We are wholly dependent upon you for that understanding. And so, Lord, we pray that today by your word and your spirit, you would work in us for your glory. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, while Terry, my son, was visiting, we sat down to have one of our chats that we kind of have whenever he visits. And as I'm sure you can imagine easily, the conversation soon made its way around to the changes that we're witnessing in our culture. It's a challenge at times to keep the world and its events in focus from a biblical perspective. This is especially true when things move quickly and they move dramatically. It often takes time to sort of think things through and to pray your way through and around events, and it's difficult sometimes to to pull back far enough from what's going on to get the bigger and the fuller picture in mind. For example, when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 11 through 13, these familiar words, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. What exactly does Paul mean when he says that? What does he mean when he says to you that you are wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places? What does he mean when he's saying that to you? Let me put it this way. Did you start off today with that idea in mind? Did you begin your day today with this in mind? That you weren't just waking up to an unseasonably warm Sunday in which you were going to dress as coolly as possible, perhaps get a bite to eat, and then head off to the church? But did you start this Sunday as a day in which 
by your association with Jesus Christ, you would be in a hand-to-hand struggle with and against high-ranking magistrates of another realm, against clever and powerful entities and their ruler who operates in the shadows directing and employing malicious hosts against you and those you know and those you love, against the work of the kingdom, against the preaching of the gospel and the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, and against the dissemination of that gospel. Did you wake up this morning with that in mind? I'm employed by God in this battle against these things. And today, I'm going to do battle on this level. The way Paul speaks of it here, beloved, he refers to it as the inevitable struggle of every Christian. And it's a matter of life and death. Edie, a well-known Bible commentator of another generation, says that the conflict which Paul describes here is not an equal one with humanity, where you struggle on equal terms, potsherd against potsherd, or children clay pot against clay pot. No, we are at a terrible disadvantage, and therefore we desperately need the panoply or the armor, the whole armor of God. When you begin to think of current events in these terms, as the Bible directs you to, it sharpens your view of everything. And hopefully, beloved, as you begin to consider these things, you begin to start thinking beyond petty politics, beyond creepy and disruptive social agendas, and you begin to ask yourself from a biblical perspective, what in the world is going on here? Now, to have this perspective clear, you must believe what God in his word says about these things, or they'll have little or no impact on you or your thinking. But if you believe, if you believe this morning that fallen angels and Satan himself are real, and that they're engaged in a relentless attack against the Trinity, against the church, and against all of God's creation, it's bound to give you a worldview that's quite different from the average person who's struggling to make sense out of what's going on in the world today or in any age for that matter. I don't know if you ever noticed it or not, but interestingly, the word never pictures Satan as idle. You won't find any reference in the Bible to Satan being idle. Everywhere he is mentioned, he is active and he is busy, going to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to devour. He's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works, who now is working, in the sons of disobedience. That's the way he's described. Active. Present. Never idle. 
Now granted, many doubt that Satan even exists or is a personal influence in the world. Sadly, even among many who claim to be Christians. Yet who does the Bible warn us is the father of lies? Who is the author of confusion? Who is the one opposed to all righteousness and all that's called godly? And who is declared to be a murderer from the beginning? All personal things, all personal activities that you can identify. Satan. And these powers and forces under his control are not base and crude or or mindless creatures mechanically carrying out some kind of agenda like demonic zombies. (laughs) They're presented to us as clever malicious and determined not as Edie observes a vulgar herd of fiends but those who are darkly eminent in dignity look at the way they're described there in Ephesians does that sound like a mindless vulgar herd of fiends these powers these principalities these magistrates in the dark realm doesn't sound like fiends it sounds like those who are eminent in dignity darkly eminent in dignity so when we look at what's happening in our culture in our age in our lifetime we have to filter it through this reality now I want you to take that concept and apply this filter to the efforts you see today to demonize people both past and present according to those who have the public ear and are powerfully influencing our culture right now no one has ever done anything truly good And if he or she has, it's immediately negated by some wrong thing that they have said or that they did or that they thought. Even if they opposed some evil and championed some good cause, it's not enough. Or it wasn't thorough enough. Or it wasn't enthusiastic enough. Or even if they managed all that, well, there was some other evil that they should have fought against, that they didn't fight against, and so they are guilty and undeserving of any honor or any special regard. We could chalk this up to political agendas of one sort or of another, of one sort or of another, sort or another. But the problem is that this mindset is crossing over political boundaries crossing back and forth over all kinds of boundaries now I realize not everyone is caught up in this but many are beloved and when something like this gets enough traction it begins to have a wider impact it becomes intimidating it it genders engenders I should say silence and cynicism that is, children distrust or, or suspicion. And it provokes a negative feeling that can become palpable. 
You're not allowed to have a hero because there are no heroes. And if you try to establish one, we'll point out what's wrong with him and we'll tear him down. You can't recognize anyone's character because their character's flawed. And if you try to present some good aspect of their character, I'll point out some bad aspect of their character and we'll bring them down. Now, here's the thing that Terry and I considered. As we focused all, on all of this from a biblical worldview, it normalizes the depravity of man on the one hand, and it eradicates the evidence of the work of God's grace on the other. It normalizes man's depravity and it eradicates the work of God's grace. By encouraging the accentuation and the normalizing of the depravity of men and women, Satan seeks to obscure the need of salvation. we're all sinners so really there is no sin and if there is no sin there's no need of a savior by pretending that all sinful behavior has no consequences and that it's indeed not sinful at all but quite normal that takes the guilt that the conscience feels in offending God and makes it appear illegitimate The principles and powers of darkness lead men and women away from the need for Christ. And the enemy does all he can to clear the road to make the road to hell as smooth as possible. And if you look at what's going on in our culture and this idea of demonizing everyone and you see it just as a political agenda, you're not pulling back far enough and you're not looking at the larger picture. Because there is an enemy who is behind it all. There is an agenda that's greater than any political agenda, one way or the other. And it's a part of this war against God and everything that is godly. And key to this is the other side of it. Eradicating any evidence of God's grace in the world. Both what we call his common grace, like when he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust, as well as his particular grace, his redeeming work in the hearts and the lives of men and women. The world must not be seen as being at the mercy of men and women excuse me, it must be seen as being at the mercy of men and women. Therefore, the world must be seen as a hopeless place because even the most notable, the most profitable of men or women are bad, bad, bad. I don't know if you can see this in the context of our time and if I'm explaining it very well. But it's a pulling of all these things apart to normalize sin and to eradicate the evidence of grace. 
And what confuses this is that men and women who are caught up in all of this often have their own agenda. Sometimes it's political, sometimes it's social. So you look out at it and you say, well, wait a minute. There are people who are pulling down heroes of the past, but they're raising up new heroes, Marxists and anarchists and so on, and putting them in the place of those characters. But that's where you have to pull back and broaden your focus. Because remember, I'm not referring to the efforts of mere flesh and blood here. I'm referring to the way that high-ranking magistrates of another realm, to the way in which clever and powerful entities and their ruler, who operates in the shadows, directs and employs his malicious hosts against you and those you know and love. I'm not talking about the naive college student or the aging hippie or the confused and angry anarchist. I'm talking about the work of the one who makes them look like children and whose agenda is far more consequential. The one who works relentlessly against the kingdom, against the preaching of the word and the dissemination of the gospel. I'm talking about the way that these powers and principalities manipulate events and influence the minds and hearts of men and women toward their own destructive ends. Demonize everyone. And then no one will feel like a sinner. Eradicate the evidence of grace and there'll be no testimony of God's work in the world. Specifically, one of their aims is to obliterate all the evidence of Christ's work of grace in the hearts of men and women. To obscure, as it were, the virtue and value of Christian character produced by God's grace through the redeeming work of Christ. So you have these flawed individuals who have been redeemed by grace And God works in them and he uses their gifts and their talents and he uses them towards some good purpose. And society in the past has recognized that good purpose. And so maybe they'll put up a statue to honor this person for his work that was born of the grace of God either generally or specifically in the world. And now we're saying that statue has to be torn down Because whatever good he did, maybe he did start a hospital for children, but he was this or that kind of sinner as well. And so he shouldn't be honored. He shouldn't be respected. His his testimony should be eradicated. So there's no witness as to how God worked through that individual, either in his general or common grace and giving them a heart for children, or more specifically, if, it's, if he were or she were redeemed and working now as a believer. God has redeemed men and women in every age of mankind. And then he's used them for a witness for the word and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. All of them remained fallible men and women who could stumble and exhibit great weakness at all times. I should say at any time, 
But God used even those things to display his grace and his kindness, his love to the world. And he continues to do that. Let me try it from another perspective and see if this helps. The truth is that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins has as its purpose, in part, the raising up of a great army to carry the truth of the gospel out into this dark world. Not on the backs of ministers, not on the backs of evangelists, not on the backs of missionaries alone, but on the backs of everyone called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He said, let your light so shine before men that they, they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And Paul, by God the Holy Spirit, elaborated on this, saying in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. How many of you could recite that, more or less? Okay, what's the next verse? For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before that that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are his workmanship, created for the purpose of of good works doing good works in this world when Paul was summarizing the faith and the blessing of the Thessalonian believers he put it this way and this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you brethren beloved by the Lord because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. All the things you expect are there, right? First of all, the testimony of how they believed the word of God and how they were saved by the gospel and how they were then sanctified by the spirit and how they obtained uh, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then the call to hold fast to sound doctrine. Now verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in being really faithful to sound doctrine and to the gospel in your own hearts, in your own church, in your own world. Is that what it says? 
doesn't do this. It says to establish you in every good word and work. To go out there and be doing the good works that God has called you to as a witness in this dark world. Christ died for you and me in part that we might by our loving in deeds and in truth carry the testimony and the evidence of the gospel of grace to men and to women and to children. So do you see the tension here? The world is saying there are no good men, there are no good women. And you are called as the warriors of Christ to go out and to do good and to demonstrate, yes, there is. There is this goodness in the world. It's not born of men. It's not created in the hearts of men by their own efforts. It is the result of the grace of God at work in this world. And I have been taken out of darkness and out of sin and out of death and been given life and energy and talents to take those things and to witness to this dark world that there is a God, that he is a loving God, that he does the work of redemption and that he works by grace in the hearts and minds of men and women who are dying because of their sins. And we are the ones who are to take up that cause. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, strap on the whole armor of God because you're struggling against this darkness which is trying to pull everything down, trying to obliterate the testimony of the work of Christ in the world, the blessing of God among men. And you're the ones who are coming forward and saying, no, there is a God. And this God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. And he has a gospel to bring to those who were lost. Just go back with me to Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In short, beloved, Christ did this work, this work here that we're remembering this morning, so that he might change you and restore you to life, so that you, being his workmanship, might do his work and love him and love others in deeds and in truth. By the grace shown to us, you and I are Christ's workmanship, his achievement. It's the same word Paul uses when referring to the work of creation in Romans chapter 1. Every one of you who stands redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ stands thereby as his workmanship created in Christ for or to do good works. (coughs) That is for loving. Not in word and tongue alone, but in deeds and in truth. The idea that we're his workmanship reminds us that our salvation, our all, is due to him, as Ellicott says. And by that workmanship, we've been spiritually formed and designed for good works. 
This desire and love for others is the result of our salvation and our election in Christ, not the cause or the condition of it. God, before we were created in Christ, made ready for us, prearranged, prepared, a sphere of moral action, or to use the simile of Chrysostom, a road, with the intent that we should walk in it and not leave it. This sphere, this road, is for us to do good works in, in Christ's name. It's the testimony and witness of this calling exhibited in the lives of millions of Christians over the ages that these powers and principalities and authorities of Satan are elated to see erased. They rejoice to see them erased. They'll employ any means toward that end. And you see it going on before your very eyes. Make every sin a virtue. Make every Christian virtue a sin. Mock and cancel every evidence of God's gracious work in society. And you will intimidate the present generation into silence, into inactivity, for fear of criticism or even persecution. No one will speak of the holiness and the righteousness of God's law. So there'll be no conviction. And therefore, no need of a savior. Is this really happening? Well, statistics say, and we all know what statistics are worth, but for what it's worth, statistics say that if you're sitting in an evangelical Christian church this morning, there is less than a 10% chance that you will hear anything about sin and salvation. Not if you're sitting in some apostate church or cathedral where nobody's really concerned about sin or the word of God or anything. If you're in an evangelical Christian church, there's less than a 10% chance that you will hear anything about sin or salvation. This past Thursday in our deacons meeting, we were working on what might be considered an ambitious plan that involves us all more intimately in ministry. Practicing some of the good works uh, we've been called to as a witness to God's grace. But one of us put into words the question that we all had as we were discussing this ambitious plan. Will the people be willing? Will the people want to get involved? Will we be willing? The answer to that question depends on three things, beloved. First of all, prayer. Our prayers as deacons uh, for the work of the Lord and our prayers for you. Secondly, your hearts. Your willingness to see your calling and the great need of the battle. And I'm thankful to say I've seen things just in the last uh, month or so that uh, I haven't seen before, uh, giving evidence to that. And giving evidence to we just want to keep pushing it and not let it go back at all. 
And thirdly, of course, and most importantly, it depends on the grace of God in his being willing to make us out to be his workmanship indeed so that we can be engaged in those things that will bear witness to his grace and to his love in the world. Where a diabolical enemy and his minions are engaged in a relentless effort to eradicate all evidence of God's grace at work. <coughs> and I believe the answer to the question, will God's people be willing, is yes. I believe that because Christ died for you to enlist you in this work, to be salt and light. You're his army called to do battle with the enemy, not on a carnal level, but on a spiritual level. I read the testimony of a father who lived at the turn of the 19th century recently, and I'm sorry I can't remember the book it was in. That's one of the hazards of old age. But as I recall, he reported that his young daughter asked him, Daddy, how do we know that Jesus died and rose from the dead and is alive? And the father gave all the usual theological answers. But he realized that they weren't making sense to her young mind. They weren't getting traction in her little mind. And he watched her. And she was playing nearby with a paper or cardboard village. And it's one he had given to or, or made for, I can't remember. It was a large collection of cardboard structures, painted to look like houses and all the buildings you'd expect to find in a town. Stores and churches and schools and hospitals and so on. And she was placing them in blocks uh, with the streets between so that she could move her horses and her carriages through the streets and from house to house and so on. And her father suddenly realized that he had a way to answer her question that she could understand. And he got down the floor with her and he asked her, if Jesus had not died and had never risen from the grave, and was not now alive, what would your little village look like, do you think? Well, the little girl, confused, said, I think it looked the same, wouldn't it? And the father said, well, let's see. And the first thing he did was reach into the village and remove the church. And he said, they wouldn't need, there wouldn't need to be a church, would there? And the little girl said, no, I guess not. And then he reached in and removed the hospital and said the hospital in our town was started by Christians. So that would probably be gone too. If you think that's a bit of a stretch, let me say that it always struck me when I was living in Knoxville that there were four hospitals in that city of about 150,000 people. There was St. Mary's of obvious origin, Baptist Hospital, Fort Sanders Presbyterian Hospital, and the University of Tennessee Hospital, and the University of Tennessee was founded by the Presbyterian Church. Where did those four hospitals come from in that city? They all came as a result of the influence of Christians in the community. Which brings me to the next thing the father removed, the school. 
He took the school out, and the, the girl said, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, what? And her father said, public education has its roots in the church. No Jesus, no salvation, no salvation, no church, no church, no schools. And the little girl was beginning to understand, especially when her father removed some of the stores and some of the homes, too. And the question arises out of this little story, beloved. How would our little world, our community, look different if we weren't here serving our Savior? Who died so that by redeeming us from sin and death, he might make out of us a people who will love him and others in deeds and in truth. Would it make any difference? If we weren't here with Tacoma Care, would it have any impact? I'm not sure. But this I am sure of. We are saved toward that end. And right now, you and I have the great opportunity, resting in Christ and in his death, to strap on the whole armor of God and go out there and bear witness to the fact that God's grace is a marvelous and a wonderful thing. And it might be nothing more grand than joining Dr. Stone and going out there and handing out water and Gatorade to people who might desperately need it today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It might be nothing more than that, but that's a piece of it. It's a, it's a part of it. To go to war against the powers of darkness with the deeds of love and mercy. Loving by deeds and truth and taking the ground heart by heart. That's what we're called to do. That's what we've been saved to do. To go out and to bear this kind of testimony. And that's the thing we're trying to bring forward as a motive, as a part of who we are as a church. Would it be for us like it was for Dorcas? If somebody heard that the Tacoma Bible Presbyterian Church was closing, there would be a crowd of people out front there at the door weeping because of all the evidence of our, our, our help and our mercy and our showing grace in the name of Christ. That's the kind of church you want to be. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's what it means to be in the battle. That's what it means to be fighting the fight. And may God give us the grace to do more than we're doing. I'm not saying we're not doing things. We are. We are. Deacons sent money to Africa to help in the battle there and already received a, a letter back graciously thanking us and, and praising us as a church for sending help in that terrible time of need. We're already doing things. Don't misunderstand me. But we're doing them, I think, very comfortably. And what we're talking about here, because warfare isn't comfortable, is it? It's not. What we're talking about here is pushing out of that comfort and getting into the trenches for the glory and testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are dependent upon you for 
knowing how to apply these things. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a clear worldview. And Lord, that that clear worldview would uh, um, help us to understand the battle that we're in and the means we have for fighting it. 